All aboard the History Express. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. We hope you enjoy this episode of the History Express podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. This Afghan war has been a war with very little pictures. And all of a sudden, the fighting was really in front of our eyes. Um, so I think there was a, a job for journalists to do, to show what, what the war is really like, how dirty it is, how nasty it is, how frightening it is. Those colleagues who went in and took the risk did a great job. So you were the first Westerner in Mazar? Yeah, yeah, good moment. And we were sort of basically a freak show, like all the other foreigners. <laughs> it was almost sometimes when your brain was struggling to keep up, you could never have predicted what was going to happen. The Taliban empire was collapsing in front of our eyes, and uh, much quicker than we all expected. The real power base in northern Afghanistan is around Mazar-e-Sharif, and the man who controls that region is Abdul Rashid Dostum. Warfare in Afghanistan has always been conducted by rules. And what Dostum has excelled at is saying, you know, I am the baddest cat in town, but if you're my friend, I will be the baddest cat towards your enemy. Before September 11th, he had no funding from anybody. He was up in the hills. The Americans showed up around October. So when an A-team goes in, they have a mission. And this one just said, support Dostum. And that means that if Dostum wanted to take over the entire country, they would help him do that. And that's not exaggerating. He had an army of 2,000 men when he rolled into Mazar on November 9th. Dostum would roll into a city to liberate it, it was almost Kipling-esque, because you'd see Dostum with his turban, the warlord, and then you'd see these two guys wearing turbans and Oakley sunglasses sitting next to him, the CIA. <laughs> so it's almost like the man who would be king, you know? But when Dostum arranged these surrenders, the, the way he arranged them was to say that the Taliban will be allowed to go home, you know, just give up your weapons, you can go back to your farms, you can all be good Afghans again, everyone will get on in peace. This was a slap in the face for America. I mean, they wanted people on trial, they wanted people punished, they certainly wanted the top Al-Qaeda guys and any of the sort of lesser lieutenants, they all wanted those guys in jail 
And the implication is preferably killed. I mean, they were giving Dawson all the weapons and all the money he needed to be able to finish these guys off. went into Kalai Jangi to follow the negotiations between the Northern Alliance and that Mullah Fazil, the leader of the Northern faction of the Taliban. And Fazil had promised that even all the foreign fighters would obey his orders and surrender. Here's how things work in Afghanistan. If two villages fight and you kill everybody in that village, you are reviled. But if two people have a disagreement from two villages and you can work out a negotiated settlement between two, then you're respected. And what Dostum has always done is use force to say, look, I have force. I can conquer you. But let's sit down and talk about this. They had negotiated surrender within three days, which meant Sunday. But Saturday morning, some contacts we had in Mazar told us, go a little east towards Kunduz, and you will see 500 Taliban foreign fighters surrender. That's a good story. Quite distant, like a mile away, through the binoculars, we could see a couple of trucks and people in the desert. And that was the Taliban preparing their surrender. The Americans circling over the sea. Dostum was there, explaining that the foreign fighters should be handed over to the UN. I mean, he said it over and over again. You know, the only way to unite Afghanistan is to play the big man and to kind of forgive. That's the first truck arriving with the foreign Taliban fighters. Pakistan? Obviously not Afghan. That was only a very small faction of the Taliban, and thousands of them were in Kunduz. And Dostum went on to Kunduz for the surrender of the main force of the Taliban. These are the very people who, up until two weeks before, had ruled this town for three years through terror. The Americans said, no, no, don't keep them here. Send them to Kalijangi, which means house of the soldier, house of war, it's a garrison. Kalijangi really is the only large area that has walls that you can control people in. It rises out of the plain, a little like a Fata Morgana. It, it, I think it's 18th or 19th century. It looks old, and behind it you have the mountains. So it's quite a picture. Dostum has his headquarters there. The weapons are handed over. They physically searched the men on three of the trucks, and then two of the trucks, they just said, go, 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 before it gets dark. They were driven through town and then taken to Kalijangi. I mean, we were really under the impression that this was going to be a positive story, you know? Here they are, they have surrendered, they have killed themselves up. These are former enemies, they were treated pretty well. They were being searched in a very nice way. Um, they were not handcuffed. They were not, you know, they were not being, you know, mistreated at all, at all. The code of conduct was, we're going to spare your lives because we think the war is over. You've lost. You're going to go back, and everybody's going to be happy again. There was a genuine attempt 
to really make this work. Where are you from? I'm from Pakistan. I'm Pakistan. Why do you come to Afghanistan? I come from jihad against, against the terrorism of USA. But now you're prisoners in Nazareth Sharif. Yeah, it's no problem. All is fair in love and war. I mean, the story changed when that first Taliban fighter blew himself up. Then the whole thing changed immediately. There were 400 plus Taliban prisoners and maybe 20, 30 armed guards all around it. Those soldiers could have began the uprising then, at that moment. And we would have been all dead by then because there was no way we could have gotten out of their lives. Well, I'm not surrender. General Dostum give the permission to root for Kandahar. We are not surrendered. Twice he says, we are not surrendered. And he says it in a quite strange way, as if he has some plan or some idea in his mind. So that was, in a way, a warning, right, that at least this one was determined. And obviously, some of them still had hand grenades. They wanted to kill Americans. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to come to Afghanistan to kill Americans. I mean, you know, these soldiers, they have said it all along. We're here to die, we're here to die. But I mean, there was a moment of panic. We filmed for another 10 minutes, and then we were asked to leave. The Mazai Sharif was not at peace yet. That's Sunday morning now. Mazar was quiet. We go to Kalai Jangi, have a look whether the prisoners are well treated. Sun was shining, it was warm already, birds were singing. They figured, okay, well, we'll take them out in small groups and we'll search them, and we'll bind their arms behind them with their turbans, and we'll sort them by either nationality or whoever they are, and we'll get a handle on this situation. There were two CIA officers. One was Johnny Mike Spann, and the other one was Dave Tyson. English. Mm. I am report, TV report, from Al Jazeera report. Mm. Listen to me. Mm. Talk to the commandant. I am from Al Jazeera report. I come from Kandahar to here, and I have a camera, and I lose it in Kunduz. I am not a Mujahid. See? Mm. What do you lose? What do you lose? Some bitch over my hand. What do you lose? We lose, we see that bomb. That man blow himself up. Kill us. Not from us. No, not, not from, from us, man. Try. Then you are afraid, huh? Yeah, of course. Not we from me, from them. All, all the whole body have checked already, sir. Check me, check me. Hello. For Dave and Mike to be in that courtyard by themselves was a major, major breach in just common sense. You know, to, to have two Americans wade out in the middle of 500 foreign prisoners, it was just unbelievable. People that were sent into the fortress had all been trained in the camps. Bin Laden's mission was to bring foreigners from Saudi Arabia, from everywhere around the world, every Islamic country, 
take them into the camps, and then send them to the front lines. They were actually used as sort of shock troops, a group of foreign volunteers that was used to buttress the Taliban fighters. And it slowly started to sink into these prisoners that they weren't going anywhere. The Americans were using them to gather intelligence. Okay, I'm with you. Okay, thank you. I'm with you and quick, quick. Hey, who brought you here? And while we were waiting, uh, this peaceful place from one second to the other turned into a hell. I just grabbed my sat phone and ran for shelter into the main building. We were like, I would say, 100 yards away. We couldn't see them because there's a dividing wall. The first information we got was through that American CIA agent, David. We saw him with his Kalashnikov and his pistol in his hand running through the, the courtyard and into our building. I asked him what's, what's going on and he has still his pistol in his hand and he's trying to put it somewhere and that's when I noticed he's nervous in a way. He turned out to be American, spoke English and um, told us there's a prisoner's uprising. He told us he had shot four of them with his pistol. And then he said that probably one American got killed. According to eyewitness accounts given to the German team, the Taliban fighters launched themselves at Span, scrabbling at his flesh with their hands kicking and beating him. Span killed two more with his pistol before he disappeared under the crush. Span became the first American to die in combat in Afghanistan. was parked there. It was hit by bullets and caught fire and burned. I asked him, who are you? And he said, well, I'm a military observer. Let's put it like that. I think he knew that I knew that he was CIA, but we agreed on that term. Okay, you're a military observer, I know you're a CIA, but let's stick to that term. Later on, he told me there's only 100 guards from the Northern Alliance. It's 500 or 400 Taliban. The Taliban have seized the main ammunition and weapons store. 
the Northern Alliance has very little ammunition. So through his information, I got the impression we are really in danger. They're going to get us. And we saw, um, it was a couple of, uh, one or two hours later, we saw a mortar grenade going up and it was launched probably like 50 meters away from us. They already knew that the ammunition dump was within the compound. I mean, the, the ammunition dump was right in the compound where they were. They could just go there. The Taliban were in the south section, and the armory is right there. It was Taliban stuff that the Northern Alliance had taken over when the Taliban had left Mazar. Now it was the Taliban's again. When I had got all that information from David, that the Taliban might get us, then I offered him the phone. He used our set phone. He called the American embassy in Tashkent. He described the situation. We have it on tape. We control the north end of the fort. The south end of the fort is in their hands. There's hundreds of dead here, at least. And I'm not, I don't know how many Americans are killed. I think one was killed. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. There was, there was two at least, me and some other guy. We just need help to free this place up. We need to have a, and again, we can't hit it from the air. We're not talking coming and firing. So they sent planes against his advice. Please make that clear. Gatekeeper's house is where I'm sitting. The American guys have brought their own translator who, as soon as he had the chance, ran away. So they needed a translator to talk to the Afghans to coordinate the airstrikes. The Afghans would tell them which building to hit, and then these guys would get the coordinates. When I came upstairs, you know, I could hear the snipers of Taliban. And, uh, so who was the translator? Mine. They took mine. And it, General Rosie told me to tell the Americans that the Taliban were hiding in a one-floor building, which is pink, in the center of third floor. Najib would translate this to the Americans, who would then sort of put their laser spotters on it. We saw them high up in the sky, and we heard the bombs or missiles, whatever it was, we heard them coming. I saw the plane and I saw the bomb. It was just a very long metal coming like this. And it was turning around. And for a moment, I thought that it was coming on me. It was coming on me. So I just kept my head in my arms and didn't look at it. Your brain just sort of shuts down for a microsecond. And, just, and then you just sort of reboot. And, uh, uh, you know, remember, remember where you are and everything. Later, everyone started shouting, great, fantastic, hey, they hit the amp. They call in nine. The first two, I think, were accurate, and the next seven were pretty accurate, but not quite. I refused to join the army, you know, in Germany. I would never have imagined that I would feel happy about bombs coming in. So I must say I welcomed the bombs, I must confess. We had a lot of discussions afterwards whether it was a good idea to have me live on air. 
because a report could end with the death of the reporter. It helped me a lot because it just meant like concentrate on your work. It was five o'clock, already sunset. And another of them on crutches made his way, which was really terrifying because it took him like a minute with his crutches and there was still gunfire. He crossed the roof, which was right in the line of fire, but he managed to get to the edge of the wall and disappeared. Hey guys, time to go, huh? It's time to go. And in a way, he took the decision for us. It was quite frightening to run those 30 or 40 meters. So we run. Mortar grenade has just hit the field here two minutes earlier. And fortunately found a car waiting for us and they drove us home to Mazar Sharif. With Dave? Yeah, yeah, he, he joined us. He repeatedly said, I have to go back there. By the time I went back to Mazar, there were another 70 journalists in town suddenly. Among them, some friends of mine. So Monday morning, I got up at, what, six? Went round to their hotel, got two friends out of bed, plus my photographer had come over the border then. So the four of us just bundled into a cab and went straight back to the fort. It's bizarre in Afghanistan, you just take a taxi to the war. As reinforcements moving in, this is the fortress, the north wall. Dodge and Damon, they're like, what the hell is that? And I'm like, oh, that's a rocket grenade, because you get to know the sounds quite <laughs> First thing was to go and hide behind a tree. <laughs> the four of us. <laughs> and so now we're approaching the northeast tower from the east. You can go through those little holes, and you walk up the side of the wall and just sort of flip over the top of the wall. There was quite a lot of fire being directed at the northeast tower all along the north wall and the northwest tower. But it's just like, whoops, you have to get your body used to it, you know. Once the Taliban fanned out across that courtyard and realized they had a fairly good supply of weapons and they could return fire, and the Northern Alliance knew it, and so they didn't just rush back in there with their tanks and settle it. It was a battle, and that battle lasted two more days. I mean, they wanted to kill them in the first place, but Dostum said, oh, no, you know, in the interest of national reconciliation, we'll let these guys go home, and we'll see if we can all live together. Once they break that deal, Northern Alliance were going to kill every single one of those people if they could. We made our way back out to the road in the northeast just in time for the special forces to arrive. Yeah, here comes the uh, U.S. guys. British. And suddenly this whole bunch of other Americans arrived, 10th Mountain Division guys, really young, you know, teenagers, with a few special forces. 
is for 10th Mountain. Uh, we're not seeing any uh, Taliban at this time. Over. Next to the dividing wall in the center. Over. Roger, uh, be advised at this time, the, uh, we're going on the uh, building that's in the center of the compound house. Uh, there are Taliban inside that uh, right now. And they proceeded to call in a bomb strike. It was a 2,000-pound JDAM, a big bomb. Uh, first sensation is just like, uh, it's just been a beautiful explosion. It was really beautiful. You see this whole thing popping out of the ground and a fog of dust. It's, uh, it's pretty uh, impressive. See, I mean, the size of that strike was so much bigger than the, the previous days. This is wrong. That was absolutely wrong. The bomb went wrong. Hit right into the Northern Alliance building. It hit where the tank was and killed, I think, six Afghans and wounded five Americans. It hit the place. I mean, we had just left there 30 minutes ago. It's a good thing we did leave. I mean, it's just random. But that would have been you. That would have been us, yeah. That's the tank that fired earlier on the northeast wall. There's the hole. There's Damien. Guy's bleeding from the eyes and ears. It caused a major shift in how the Afghans viewed American assistance. Because there's nothing like fighting a war and then calling in a bomb right on your command post. <laughs> Special Forces guy asked me, he said, listen, we do a lot of cool stuff and we never get to see it. Can we get a copy of your video when we're, uh, when we're redeployed, when we're out of here? And I said, yeah, no problem. So I, I got out my cards and gave him all my contact information. And then he turned around and did us a favor, too. He said, listen, whatever you do tonight, don't be inside the fortress. You can be around because you're going to see an amazing show, but don't be inside the fortress tonight. And I said, oh, you're going to send in AC-130 gunships? And he said, I can't comment on that. And then about 11 o'clock, things got very strange at the house. And we started hearing this four-engine propeller plane circling overhead. All of a sudden, pa-pum, pa-pum. The guys are still going on. It's a pretty intensified fighting around the fort of Kalichan. And they were passing, and every time, just blazing that fort. Golden showers of bullets coming out of it, striking the fort. I mean, these things just obliterate whatever is below them. They hit one of the ammo dumps early in the early morning hours, and it was like a fireworks display. The fortress was still there. And uh, so we decided just to climb back in. It's like nothing had happened the night before. They were planning to attack. The Northern Alliance were establishing their positions, and they were planning to have the decisive attack today, Tuesday. That's the SAS. You know, they didn't want to be filmed at all. They were trying to wear masks and handkerchiefs. Turn the cameras off. Turn the cameras off. No. No. Turn the cameras off. Yeah, they weren't too happy to see us there. 
at all. You're not in the United States. You have no right, no authority. Yet. Right, then put that, in, then put that okay. in your notes. Put that in your notes. I'm going to fucking shoot you. I'm going to fucking shoot you. And we just explained to him, you're not in America. You have no legal authority here to tell us anything. You're in Afghanistan. You're a guest like we are. Okay, okay guys. That's all we're asking. So we shouted at each other. And from that moment on, they let us film without any trouble. And you can see, okay, there's the British, there's Dave, the CIA guy, there's the 5th Special Forces Group guys that we talked to the day before. Those guys look like, who knows, Air Force Combat Controllers or Delta, because they get to wear whatever they want. I mean, there was just a mix. You could hear aircraft overhead. So my impression was, first they were there, like they had come every day before, to get the U.S. body out of there, Span's body, once the battle was over. But also, I got the impression that if things ever went south and it fell apart, they had an airplane above them on station that they could call in an airstrike and maybe contain or maybe settle the situation. Not, not close to me. Assault. So a lot of Northern Alliance went to the, the top of the wall and shot from there into the compound where the Taliban were. Behind this wall, down there is the Taliban holed up inside the fortress. You could hear some of the bullets ricocheting flying overhead. And look at this. He orders his soldier to get down. I mean, this is like Afghan way warfare. I don't think I saw one person aim for every 20 who fired their weapon. It was a carpet bombing approach. So this guy gets wounded. At least he doesn't die instantly. He even walks away, and then is carried away. Please, no, no, no. This is the guy right here. I'm screened by the... There's, this is where that foxhole was where those guys were in there. Couldn't get anybody to really approach the hole and drop a grenade in or do anything that would be decisive but just to eliminate the Taliban position. It took a long time. Hand grenade. Hand grenade goes off. Yeah. He's in here. Look, we have to look. So they were fighters. They had the only option to fight because the only way to finish it, that was with their grip. Now watch here. You see the gun of the Taliban? He makes his run. Now watch here, a Taliban appears here. It's shot at, right? It's obviously hit. Now a grenade comes. 
and they make their run. They got great pictures showing what war is really like, um, not only the aftermath, but when it's going on. But I wouldn't have gone in. My friends, the journalists, Damian, Dodge, uh, Alex and Oleg, all went in. But then the forward progress stalled again because as they came across the Taliban bodies, they would strip them of their tennis shoes and their belt. Shoes were, were gold there. Shoes are the best yeah. booty of war. I think there was still the idea that there were Taliban in the basement. I have a shot of them taking five-gallon jerry cans, and I thought they were full of petrol, and throwing them down one of the shafts, and then taking grenades and throwing their grenades down. When people are dead, they lie in very sort of unnatural positions. So they don't really look kind of real, as though they've got no bones in them or something. You know, the, 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 their bodies are all positioned wrong, as though they're dolls or something. Yeah, the camera moves pretty fast here. This is the guy who was alive. They kept throwing rocks at his head. Kind of emotional for me. I mean, when all the bodies were on that battlefield and they were all covered in the Afghan dust, in a way they became innate objects. I felt absolutely no emotion for the, for the bodies, but to see this one that was still alive, suffering, it surprised me. And on I think it was an emotional response when they threw the rock on his head. I said, hey, why don't you just put a bullet in his head and just kill him, just end it, you know, mercy kill. And then I felt bad for saying that out loud, but then thankful that they couldn't actually hear me, or they couldn't hear me, they didn't understand what I said. Two guys that came out of those stores with AK-47s saying, Allah Akbar, and shooting. Four or five Taliban, I guess, jumped out of the stables and just put down covering fire. And within a second, I forgot all about that body on the battlefield and ran up to the cover of the house, looked and see, looked to see all the Northern Alliance people, all the Northern Alliance soldiers retreating up the ramp. This is when they're retreating up the wall. And that was my immediate turnaround, just to see, whoa, our guys are gone, and there they are going up the hill. Leaving me, Dodge and Damien, and Oleg sort of sitting there going, uh. They were gone. They were just gone. He's going, you hold, you hold. He has his notebook. <laughs> I have my camera. Damien, I think, was there, had his camera. Oops. I looked at Alex, and I just muttered something like, we should not be running, but we are here alone. I, saw, I don't remember what. And he looked at me, and I didn't even see Damien. I don't know. He was there somewhere. He decided to run, of course. <laughs> and we just lit out across the field. At that point, you get a little scared, because you're just like, oh, maybe I went too far at this point. You're kind of aware that some of these bodies might have been booby-trapped as well, and you're, you know, taking care. I mean, nobody wants to tread on a body anyway, but kick the wrong one, it might blow up. Who was running at the front? I think I was. The thing that was disturbing is that after two or three hours of fighting to take the ground below, everybody was back up on the walls, and there were no Northern Alliance in the courtyard. They had to start over again. They finally brought in a tank through the passageway from the north end of the fortress. And the tank fired a couple of shells. You know, boom, one shot, two shot, three shot. And by dusk, it was over. 
there's a body up here. The same courtyard that I had left three days before with 400 Taliban fighters being searched and giving themselves up was littered with those same fighters torn to pieces, body parts everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, there were bodies everywhere. I mean, I've covered several wars. I've never seen so many dead bodies in one place. It was just unbelievable. One of the Northern Alliance soldiers was using a dead body of a Taliban as a sandbag. And I said, is this what this whole war is all about? I mean, there's bits and pieces everywhere. You know, it was, it was a disaster, it was disgusting. I mean, there was no clear evidence of, of executions. I mean, you could tell that these were being killed in battle. There were horses that had been shot. Some that looked like they had been partially butchered. I think the assumption was the Taliban may have been living off the horse meat. Uh, I even saw a horse that was still alive with a broken leg there. I mean, it was, it was really uh, brutal, brutal. That fight was brutal. That fight was brutal. Now this is a typical Afghan, when they come out of the fighting, it doesn't matter what's going on, they just eat, they want their picture taken. And if they had a teapot, they would invite you to tea, you know, it's... it's... <laughs> They're such nice people. At 2 a.m., you could hear this armored column rumble through town, and so I went out to the balcony where I was staying, and it was Dostum arriving from Kunduz. He, in fact, Dostum was gone the entire battle of Kalajungi. And they were not happy that this was going on. That's Dostum as most people know him, you know, with the big Till of the Hun look. That's Span's pickup. Michael Span's pickup from the first day. Some of these bodies have been there for five days. And the smell was absolutely uh, unbelievable. What's the smell like? I guess a combination of sort of stale milk, cheese, stink of excreta, really, uh, catches at the back of your throat. It's quite difficult to eat food for a little while afterwards. There was so much shooting that all the branches had fallen off and covered the ground like a carpet. Three health officials started making their way down the stairs of the pink house to go into the cell complex below, and they were shot. One never returned. And at that point, I guess they realized, we have Taliban are still willing to fight down in the basement. The reason he showed up was to actually bring the mullahs there and to say, look, look what your people have done. And then hopefully to get them to call up the remaining fighters that were still in the bunker. He was most upset because their people had shown such discourtesy. So on the big picture, he did the right thing, but they had absolutely no way of dealing with this uprising.
The mullahs were asked to sort of yell down and say, please give up, brothers, you know, it's over, don't, don't kill anyone. And what was the response? <laughs> True to the Talib tradition, they said, no, we don't know those people, <laughs> so they didn't bother. He was disappointed, obviously, because his, his deal had gone sour, but he was really enraged. And he tried to say, you know, I, can't, I don't understand why they did this, because we offered them food, we offered them a deal, and they didn't respect your deal, but you could tell that inside himself, he was really, really mad. When I interviewed them, they were just really unrepentant about anything. They just said, we fought for an idea, and we didn't win. It's as simple as that. And that was basically how they summed up the whole Talib movement. You know, betrayal, deception, this is, these are rules of war. They took the warheads off the rocket launchers, RPGs, and basically were throwing the warheads down. And you could hear them blowing up. When you see the result of what happened, it is pretty shocking. But you also have to never, never, never forget what brought them there that particular battle at Kalaijangi. They chose to, to, to fight. The prisoners chose to fight. I mean, Friday they started pumping water. You know, it was quite cold in Mazar at this time, and it was cold water, and they didn't know how many Taliban were there. Come Saturday, you know, I mean, this, this is a week now. And the water up to the rink, that's why they had to come out. Taliban shout out that they're giving themselves up, and 86 guys walk out. Somebody came charging in, one of Dostum's men, and he said, there's an American in the hospital. We're at the hospital in Shebergan, where they keep the wounded. And an American has been found in the basement of Kalijangi prison and brought here. The American's name. Huh? John, the father's name. Open your eyes. Huh? He's pretty hypothermic. You know, the problem with these people, they've been standing in freezing water for 20 hours, and they were on the back of a truck, and it was freezing cold. When I arrived in London, I hear that 86 had walked out of that basement that day on Saturday and that one of them was this American Taliban, John Walker. And I think that was surprising to everyone. So what made you decide to leave the basement? It was the last day. What happened was yesterday they, they had bombed us with airplanes, they had shot missiles, they had thrown grenades, they had shot us with all types of guns, they had poured gas on us and burned us, they had done everything you can imagine. So the last thing they did was they, they poured water down into the basement. They wanted to fill it up with water. And then he wants to talk, then he keeps talking to me. Was your goal to be Shaheed or martyr? Yes, the goal of every Muslim. Was it your goal though? Huh? Was it your goal at that time? I'll tell you, to be honest, every single one of us, without any exaggeration, every single one of us was 100% sure that we would all be shahada and he shaheed, probably about us. But, you know, Allah chooses to take a person's life when he chooses, mm -hmm. and we have no control over 
he was the first face. He was the first person that we could sort of get our heads around. Because bin Laden was the bad guy, but we couldn't find bin Laden. And Mullah Omar was like number two, but we didn't have pictures of Mullah Omar. We didn't have him talking to us. And here was a guy who spoke perfect English, who told us exactly what he was doing, you know, professed his love for the Taliban, who we hated, told me how happy he was that he was lying there and in sort of utter wretch of a human being after being starved and frozen and half dead. And he was basically the enemy saying, screw you, you know? And he was an American at that. I mean, it's just people's blood boiled. Well, what happened was we spent the night under the basement. Then they let us out one by one. They would search each one of us, and then they tied us up, and they put us out on the lawn. So as they were taking us one by one, somehow they started fighting, with, starting with a grenade, then one of them grabbed a Kalashnikov from one of the Dustin uh, Army forces. And uh, so the fighting began. So many of them held, they hid inside of their clothes uh, hand grenades which is uh, against what we had agreed upon. And this is against Islam. It's considered a major sin to break a contract that you've made, especially in military situations. As soon as the gunshots started, everybody stood up and ran. I ran maybe two meters, and I was shot, and everybody fell down. So the whole time, I was just in the basement and against the wall. He went to study Arab the Arab language in Yemen, and was not well-liked by his classmates. He then went off to try to get more sort of fundamentalist training, and they rejected him. And then he went to Pakistan to a madrasa, which is normally populated by little kids reciting the Quran. And here's this big goofy guy, you know, studying the Quran. He went to join the Taliban. The Taliban said, well, you don't speak our language, you're no use to us, so go to the Ansar Brigades. He ends up being involved with Osama bin Laden and what we call the Al-Qaeda network. So the Arab uh, section, of the Ansar is funded by Osama bin Laden. Also, the, the training camps that uh, the Arabs train in before they come to the front lines are funded by Osama bin Laden. And then gets turned in by his loyal Talib commanders and ends up in Kalijangi trying to surrender but ending up being sort of victimized by all that violence. And now he's going to be sort of a, a show trial over here for being a traitor. And then we find out later that. One of the reasons he left home was because his father separated from his mother. And, and the stories in the press are that his father moved in with another man. That was sort of what launched him on his little hijira. You know? Was this what you thought it would be? Was, was this the right cause or the, the right it's place? exactly what I thought it would be. Okay. You're an American citizen, right? Yeah. Well, right now, you're a prisoner. All right. OK. Do you understand why? Of who? Prisoner of the American government? Or right now. All right. right now you're a patient. Yeah. And the Americans are treating you. Right. Right. American doctors. Thank you. Okay. We'll, so we will move him to where we are staying tonight. Mazar Sharif was not the proudest hour for the Americans in this war. That was absolutely wrong. They lost a man and they called a bomb strike on themselves, basically. And then they found this guy. 
The battle was such a story, and that was totally eclipsed by the story of the two Americans. For the United States, anyway, it gave you a hero, Michael Spann, who dies in combat, the first KIA. And then you have John Walker, American Taliban. And then the tape surfaces of Spann actually trying to interrogate Walker, which is remarkable. You ain't that Oscar, Miguel. To begin? You have that. And Walker is very uncommunicative. He says nothing to them. Any journalist who saw the tapes was just shocked at how bad they were at interviewing people. I mean, it's amateurish. You know, this is not CIA trained operatives. You know, this is amateur hour. And in a strange way, they sort of threatened him with death. The problem is, he needs to decide if he wants to live or die and die here. I mean, if he don't want to die here, he's going to die here, because we're just going to leave and they're going to, he's going to fucking sit in prison the rest of the fucking, you know, short life. It's his decision. The threats that they made to the Taliban could quite plausibly have helped set off the revolt. If you tell people that they're all going to die unless they talk to the CIA, it completely undermines what Dostum had said about guaranteed security and so on. We can only help those guys who want to talk to us. We can only get the Red Cross to help so many guys. If they don't talk to us, we can't. We can't. You, know, you know the people you're here, hey, look at me. You know the people that you're here working with are terrorists? They've killed other Muslims. There were several hundred Muslims killed in bombing. They didn't even know each other at that time or that their fates would be so intertwined that it would become, in many ways, the story of the war. That's right. You know, just one American was killed here, Mike Spann, as the Americans themselves confirmed. But uh, there were more than 300 Afghans killed here, more than 300 Afghans killed. And I saw many of them by my own eyes. We were looking for an adventure, we were looking for a story. We had it all, we have it all. The right time at the right place, I guess. <laughs> if you want to be there. It's wild, it's just a wild story. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Express podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please look in the show description notes for a link that will allow you to help support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, have a great day.